Father God, we do praise you that you're a gracious and a great God. We thank you for the way that you've loved us and given us so many good gifts from above. Most assuredly, the gift of Jesus and the forgiveness that comes through his death, burial, and resurrection. As we turn to your word, help us to know it, to understand it, most importantly, to do it, that we might live for your honor and your glory. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look together. James chapter 1. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 22. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 22. The word of God says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is the word of God. In the 2007 Disney film Meet the Robinsons, we encounter a boy genius named Lewis who invented a memory scanner machine in hopes to find his mother. He winds up traveling into the future with a newfound friend named Wilbur Robinson, and they travel to the year 2037, which, mind you, is only 14 years from our presence. That's right. Along the way, the villain named the Bowler Hat Guy tries to change the future by keeping the memory scanner from being completed. The Bowler Hat Guy tries everything that he can to foil the young hero's plan and capture them. He even brings a T-Rex into the future to chase them. Tiny the T-Rex is his name. And he provides one of the most memorable moments of the movie when he gets young Lewis in the corner. He's hiding there and he runs toward him and he's unable to get him. And here is Tiny's response. He says, I have a big head and little arms. And I don't think this plan was very well thought through. And you're probably asking yourself, what does this have to do with this morning's sermon? While not written to T-Rexes, James is writing to people who have a similar problem that Tiny does. The people he's writing to had big heads full of knowledge, but little arms of ignorance to do what God called them to do. They were knowers, but not doers. They knew what to do, they couldn't do it. Or to put it another way, pastor and leadership guru John Maxwell summed up the problem this way. He said, the average Christian is educated far beyond his level of obedience. The average Christian is educated far beyond his level of obedience. In other words, he knows all sorts of things, 
but isn't necessarily doing even the ABCs. He knows how to drive, but he's not even crawling yet. And James 1 is here to diagnose and cure us of that. Let's set the context as we've been working through this book together. James has been talking about trials throughout chapter 1, and he's transitioned now into the second big theme of the book, which is how we receive and respond to God's Word. And he's going to keep on this theme through chapter 2. Last week we saw in chapter 1, verse 19 to 21, that we come to God's Word with a proper attitude. We need to be quick to listen slow to speak, slow to become angry. He says, put away sin and receive the word with meekness, the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But James isn't simply concerned with our attitude. In fact, we can be hearers of God's word, even slow to speak opposed to it, slow to be angered by it, We can receive it in the right way, yet still not do with it what we ought. In fact, James, in these next two paragraphs we're going to look at together, wants to show us that we don't simply need a proper attitude. Here's the main point. We need to respond to God's word with proper action. We must respond to God's word with proper action. I don't know if you're like me, but if you're certainly in a pastor's house, you begin to accumulate a lot of Bibles. I got tons of them, just about every translation imaginable. And friends, we can own hundreds of Bibles, but would we say that God's Word owns us? That we can read it cover to cover, but has the Word of God read and transformed us? And so James, in light of all this, offers three different warnings, three different, he says it three different ways, saying, We need to come to God's word with proper action. He gives us three warnings about what it looks like to not do so. Here's the first thing he warns us about. He says, don't be deceived. Do the word. Don't be deceived. Look at verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Notice the warning here. Don't just be a hearer, which is what verse 19 says, but be a doer. Apply it. Live it out. And we got to notice, he isn't speaking against hearing, like hearing the word of God is bad, right? He isn't saying, hey, don't read it, just do it. In fact, many of us, before we can ever be doers, have to be hearers first. You got to know what to do before you can do it. But rather, he's saying, don't be a hearer only seek to live it out don't just fill your mind but have your mind transformed so that your feet might be set on a holy trajectory god gives us his word for us to know but also for us to apply and obey you may have heard in church you know they talk about bible b-i-b-l-e basic instructions before leaving earth right and while that can be helpful it's also basic instructions for how you're supposed to live right here and now It's not just about then, it's about how God's people are to live in the present. I'd even go as far to say that scripture, it's not ever been properly studied or taught or preached if application isn't given. 
If you're not to understand what you're to do with it, we must be doers, not just hearers, because if we do that, James says, we are deceived. In fact, he even warns about deceiving yourself, misleading yourself, deluding ourselves that we're all set when we're the height of ignorance. Have you ever thought you knew a ton about a subject, only to meet somebody who actually knows about that subject and then go, ooh, I don't know nearly as much as I thought I did. Maybe I need to do a little more than one Google search before I speak about a subject, right? Friends, you can know the Greek behind the New Testament. You can know all about the biblical culture. You can read stacks of commentaries, and there's nothing wrong with those things. But if you do it without believing and doing the truth, you are deceived. Can you see the irony back in verse 18? He calls, he says, the word of truth. And now he warns about being deceived by because you're not properly using the word of truth. Jesus gives us the same warning. In fact, James basically takes almost all of his teaching right out of Jesus' teaching. And in the sermon called The Parable of the Sowers, which is behind a lot of James' teaching, we looked at this a little last week, Jesus taught about four soils. And each soil represented a different way to respond to God's word. All four were hearers, but not all four were doers. He talks about the seed that's planted along the road and that a bird comes and takes it away. And he says, that's a... That's the word that's been planted, but the devil takes it away so that it cannot be believed and acted upon. He talks about the seed among the rocks are those who initially receive the word, but it has no root, and the trials of life snuff it out. James wrote to believers that were facing trials of various kinds, and his heart for them is that they not fall away in the midst of it, but persevere by faith. He then talks about the seed among the thorns is the seed which is choked out by worldliness and riches. James's audience had all sorts of trials and troubles relating to worldliness and wealth. And he says, I desire that they not be choked out and fall away. But rather, James wanted them to have the fourth soil, which Jesus describes this way, Luke 8, 15. He says this, as for that in the good soil... They are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Good soil receives the word and produces the fruit of good works. They are hearers and doers. But we've got to notice something there that's, clear, that's kind of interesting. He says, hey, it bears fruit with patience. I saw a pastor friend Quote this, that, quote this this past week, and like any good pastor quote, he couldn't find me the original source. But he said this, he said, to grow mushrooms, it takes a couple days. To grow trees, it takes 20 years. To grow people, it takes a lifetime. And I went through the comments, and most of the people in the comments missed the point because they were sharing all sorts of various uses of mushrooms. And you can figure out what you think they were trying to talk to this guy about. But the point is that people grow slow. And while, yes, we're called to be doers and hearers of the word, we're not called to overnight perfection. 
There is a temptation to use a passage like this as a bludgeon over our heads and over the heads of others to point out all of our little imperfections, and that's not what this text is here for. But rather, it is a kind and gracious word of examination for the overall direction of our lives and the posture of our hearts. Think of it like a doctor checking, checking out your, your vitals and doing a physical and going, hey, I would encourage you to change a few things in your life. The wrong way to respond to that is to go home and just fall into a, 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 a pillar of despair and just be so sad and not do anything about it. But rather, we should take their words as kind correction to begin to make some adjustments to be both hearers and doers. Jesus sends the same message at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house and it did not fall because it had not been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. God's saying to us, don't be the foolish man who builds his life on the rock. Notice, or builds his life on the sand. Notice, both the one on the rock and one on the sand heard the word. The difference was that they built their life on actually doing the word. And James says, don't be deceived. You can be a hearer and not be a doer. And speaking of foolish and deception, James then turns to an analogy of a foolish man. I love this. Look at verse 23. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Here's the second warning. His first warning was don't be deceived, do the word. Here's his second warning. Don't be distracted. Do the word. Don't be distracted. Do the word. He gives an analogy of a man who is distracted. And this is one of the few analogies in the Bible that isn't rooted in nature. He isn't talking about agriculture. He isn't talking about looking at the birds. This is about a man looking in a mirror. And now in these days, in James's day, they didn't have mirrors made of glass like we do today. Those wouldn't be invented for many years later. But their mirrors were typically made out of beaten down metal, silver, or bronze. And they could provide a true but not perfect reflection. Sort of like if you ever looked at yourself in the back of a metal spoon, right? It kind of gives you an idea of what that looks like. And we meet a man who's looking in the mirror intently. Maybe the man was preparing for a job interview. Maybe he's looking, maybe he's preparing for a first date. He's open to impress. He's looking over every hair, every inch of his face, making sure he's got nothing in his teeth, right? He's doing it. He knows what he needs to do, how he needs to shave, what he needs to wear. He makes the plan, but then, verse 24, he looks at himself and he goes away and forgets what he was like. The guy walks away, does nothing with his face. He kept his messy beard, his unkempt hair, his unbrushed teeth. He's got morning breath. 
He forgets to put on a nice shirt. He doesn't even put on some pants, and he rolls out of bed, and he goes to his date. How do you think that went for the guy? Probably not very well, right? This is a man who is distracted. We don't know what caused him to walk away and forget. Friend, maybe his phone rang. Right, of course, they didn't have phones back then, right? Maybe he had to get some food, and he was going to come right back. Maybe his children interrupted him. Amen? Whatever it may have been, the man did not follow through, but rather forgot. And it seems kind of ridiculous at first as I was reading this going, who does that? And then I realized how often I do that. How often it is that I can spend a ton of time looking at myself and walk away and forget what I need to do. I can walk in a room and forget why I walked in that room. What did I get up to go get, right? He made a big deal out of looking, but not a big deal out of doing. And before we're too harsh on the man, I'd ask myself, can I remember what the point of the sermon was last week? And then I had to test myself a little more going, it's not fair for me to challenge myself on what I said last week. What about three or four weeks ago, right? How tempted are we to hear the word and walk away and forget everything we heard? How tempted am I in forgetting if I read my Bible in the morning what I read by lunch? Am I tempted to dive into God's Word and begin to be distracted because of texts or news feeds that I end up not really getting in the Word at all? Friends, I know I'm far more like this man than I care to admit. And come to find out, the man wasn't even looking at the right thing. Look at verse 25. But the man who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he'll be blessed in his doing. Notice, when the man looks in the mirror, he's ultimately looking at himself. But rather than looking at himself in vanity, the man should have been looking intently into the perfect word of truth that would lead to his doing. He looked in an imperfect mirror, but he needed the perfect mirror of the Word of God. And there's a principle here, because if you look ultimately to yourself, you just buckle down, pull up your bootstraps, I'm going to obey, I'm going to give myself the rocky talk in the mirror, right? I'm going to do this in my own strength. It's never going to work. You need God's word to be the motivation and the fuel for your obedience. In fact, today churches around the globe celebrate what's called Pentecost Sunday. Forty days after Easter, the Holy Spirit came, right? Friends, we got to understand, we come to the word of God if we've trusted in Christ with the spirit of Christ living inside of us. And God enabling to help us better do these things and live these ways. In fact, notice what he calls the Bible, because I think it's important what we believe about the nature of God's word will directly impact how we receive and respond to it. Notice first, he calls it the perfect law in verse 25. If you notice, he moves from describing it in verse 18 as the word of truth now to being the perfect law, and I think both encapsulate what we need to know. And it's that God's word is perfectly true without error. It's divine revelation from the God of all goodness and grace. Yes, it gives us laws, but they're good and perfect laws that are meant to bring us to joy and goodness and completeness. 
Recall what God is called in verse 17, because in chapter 1, verse 17 of James, we get introduced to the author of the word of truth. And we read this, every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And what is true of the author must be true of his perfect word that he has given. He's good and perfect and from above, unalterable and unchangeable. And these things are true of the word that he has given to us. He calls it the perfect law. And then he calls it the law of liberty. In verse 25, the law of liberty. He's going to call it that again in chapter 2, verse 12. The word of God is a law that brings freedom. Rather than being rules that bring us into slavery and ruin, God's word is the law of liberty, showing us how to live as God has designed for us to live. See, we often want freedom, and what we mean by freedom is freedom to do whatever we want. That's what we want, right? Freedom to do whatever we want. But friends, that's not freedom at all. That's simply slavery to self. And slavery to your own whims and desires, which, friends, if you're anything like mine, shift and turn very, very quickly, right? Whereas God's perspective on freedom is not freedom to do what you want, but freedom to do as you ought. Freedom to do what you're supposed to do, what he has meant to do. Not freedom to abuse what God has given to us. So he says to live submitted to the law of liberty, and that is true freedom. Because everyone's going to live in obedience to something or someone, even if it's just whatever they want that day. You can be your own slave, or you can have your desires submitted to your designer, to the God who made you and loves you. And notice he says, we're not just called to glance at these things. He says, but to look and persevere. Don't, don't be like the soil who briefly produces fruit and gets choked out. He says, ultimately, friends, the life of faith is not about how you start, but about how you continue and how you finish. Because faithfulness is a marathon and not a sprint. Faithfulness to God is a marathon and not a sprint. And this is why it's a call to continued study, to continue to press in, to give our attention toward every little detail, even down to the tiniest dot and tittle of the word. And not to do it just for the sake of doing it, but for the sake of doing and applying. Look what he says in verse 25 again. He says, we're not to be hearers who forget, but doers who act. And he, the one who does, will be blessed in his doing. We're meant to look, to linger, and to walk by faith in obedience to God. This is the pathway to blessing, to the blessing of God. And today, God's wanting you to consider how you're running the race of faith. Maybe it's been a long time since you picked up the perfect law of liberty and read it. And the invitation today is no matter how long it's been, you can pick yourself up in the race and pursue after God again. He's so gracious to us. Are we living the life of faith with sustainable practices that help us endure? Some of us want to run so hard, and we just can't keep doing that. 
Sometimes it's the simple practices of waking up and pursuing God in his word and prayer. Sometimes it's being around other people to nourish our souls. It's spending time with God's people to be encouraged in the race. Some folks always want this super high emotional experience in their relationship with God. And if that's what you do constantly, you will burn out. Every single time. Because friends, just like all other relationships have their emotional highs and they're just average days, friends, so does the word of God. So does your relationship walking with God. Friends, you may not always remember every meal you have, but it can still nourish you. And so, friends, sometimes just waking up and pursuing after God and to persevere, not judging your progress hour by hour or day by day, but rather years and decades. The key from the analogy that James gives here is that the man walks away and forgets, but God calls us to persevere in his word and continue in the race. And then James closes with a very practical message, and I actually preached on this text a few weeks ago in verse 26 and 27. James 1, 26 and 27, he says this, If anyone thinks he is religious, but does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. I could belabor this point again, but you can go back and listen to my sermon on James 1.27 a few weeks ago. But here's the final warning that he gives. He says, don't be defiled. Do the word of God. Notice he talks about religion that is pure and undefiled. And so he says, don't be that way. Don't be defiled. Do the word. And specifically, he highlights three areas we're meant to apply the word. First, he says, apply the word in your relationship to yourself. He specifically speaks of doing the word in relationship to our self-control, to bridling our tongues and not deceiving ourselves. He's going to say a lot more about that in chapter 3. And James is telling us that any faith, James uses the term religion because that's not a bad word, right? He says any faith, any religion that doesn't lead to greater self-control isn't worth its salt. It's worthless if it doesn't lead us to live lives that are more worthy, to bridle our tongue and our lives so that we won't live defiled or speak defiled words. True faith brings change to us, not an excuse to do whatever we want. This kind of sounds like James's famous passage over in chapter 2 where he says, faith without works is dead. And we're going to get there in a couple weeks. He then says, we should do the word in relationship to our neighbor. Bridle your tongue, self-control for yourself, and consider your neighbor. We talked about this a few weeks ago during Compassion Sunday, verse 27, that we're to follow Christ as holy helpers, visiting and serving the needy among us. Particularly, he highlights the orphan and the widow in their affliction. To do the word of God is going to require us to care about people other than ourselves. This is true religion. Finally, he says, we must do the word in our relationship to the world. 
He tacks on something at the end of verse 27, and people leave this off whenever they quote this verse. He says, religion that's true and undefiled, yes, takes care of the widows and orphans in their affliction, but also keeps oneself unstained from the world. To live in the world, but not of the world. To serve the community with compassion without compromise. You can be about social causes in the world without caving to social pressures and worldly ideologies. To be the hands and feet of Jesus. To have our minds transformed by God's word rather than conform to the ways of the world. And James is here to warn us about the true reality of being deceived, distracted, and defiled by only hearing, but not doing. By not responding to God's word with action. And one of the temptations of a passage like this and a sermon like this is to be a source of deep guilt, shame, and discouragement. You can replay before your mind today all the places that you fall short or you feel that you're hearing but not doing. And I would say that that's probably the wrong response today to this truth from God's word. Remember, the man was looking at himself in the mirror and yet was still able to walk away and forget. Because the mirror can show you the truth and allow you to measure how you look against others but it doesn't have the power to change you. In fact, you might look at yourself, see all the ways you fall short, and then just throw up your hands and give up. But that doesn't mean all hope is lost. Life change often begins with a single step. There's a, a space there at the bottom of your notes that says, my next step is, and then a space. And I want for you today for you and God alone to see, for you to write a step you can take to respond rightly to God's word, or maybe a step you know you need to take, that God's word's been telling you and you know you need to do, but you've been putting it off, and you're sitting there going, has the preacher been following me around? That's not me, that's the Holy Spirit. If you've got something in particular on your mind, that's God telling you, take that next step. And I'd invite you to pray and ask God through his word by the Spirit to reveal a step, whether big or small, that you can do to be a hearer and a doer of his word. Because the mirror of God's word can reveal our deepest need and actually meet it. It can reveal your sickness and cure it. Because the word is both a law which convicts and promise which comforts. It shows us how hopeless we are, and it reveals the greatest hope imaginable, that we are not alone. As we think about these words from James, we've got to understand that they don't come in a vacuum. There are other incredible promises from God around it. Just consider James chapter 1, verse 5, where it says, God's a generous giver to those who do not have. We can ask for wisdom, and he'll give without finding fault. Isn't that good news when you're sitting here going, how am I supposed to do this? God stands ready to help you as you come to the word and seek to do. Or consider the promise of verse 12 in chapter 1 where it says that, we, that there's a crown of life waiting. And he says, not for those who perfectly do the word, but for those who love him. Do you love him? Are you seeking him? Then the promise of a crown of life awaits, and that can encourage you to run the race with joy. 
and with perseverance. Verse 18 says this, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creation. We're reminded that the word of truth is the way God brings new life. And we're the first fruits, an agricultural term that means he's got a lot of growing before harvest time. Until God brings you home or he wraps up the story with his incredible return, if you're still here today, God's not done with you. And he's got work to do in you. And then we read this, James 1, 21. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. See, the word of God isn't simply a list of things you've got to do. Friends, it also is a promise of what God has done. And for every look at self that, it, that, that this invokes in you, take 10,000 looks to Jesus because Jesus is the only one who's ever been a perfect hearer and a perfect doer of God's word. And he lived a perfect life in your place. He died on the cross and he rose again so that through faith, his perfect life is credited to you. You receive the righteousness of God imputed, credited, given to you. And he receives the punishment due your sins. For those who turn from our sins and receive the implanted word, the truth, and the person of Jesus, God will give you the spirit to enable you to turn your life around, even with just one simple step. And so today, whatever step of faith you need to take today, not simply as a hearer, but as a doer, you can do. God is gracious and stands ready to receive you. Maybe whatever step that is, you need prayer. I'll be down front. You can come pray privately. You can pray with me. You can pray with people around you. Whatever step it is, we don't walk through it alone. We've got a Savior who's loved us and given himself for us. He's, got a, he's given us his spirit that we might walk ahead in faithfulness. And maybe today the step you need to take is to trust Jesus for the first time. Maybe you've been one of those that your whole life you've been a hearer, filling a seat, but never really being a participant in the kingdom of God. Today, Jesus stands ready to receive even you in these next moments. And so whatever step you need to take, let's prepare to seek the God who's ready to work in us and produce in us fruit for his glory and our good. Let's stand and let's pray together. Father in heaven, we know you have loved us with an incredible love. You have been good and gracious. All good gifts come down from you, who is the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And we're thankful that you've given us the gift of your word for us to hear and receive, but also for us to do. We're thankful that you didn't just give us instructions on how to get to heaven, but you also gave us instructions on how to live in light of heaven. And how to live as people here on this earth in a way that would bring glory to you and joy to us. Help us to be not simply hearers, but also doers. Help us to believe the promises of your word and to pursue you by the power of your spirit. And we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and 